<clears throat> I invite you to take your Bibles today and turn with me to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, which will be our text, and rather than <clears throat> reading that uh, text at this point, we will read the text as we work our way through it. But our text today again is Mark chapter 9, verses 14-29. If there is a sin which is at the root of all other sins, it must be the sin of unbelief. For to disbelieve God is to treat His promises and warnings as vain and empty words. It is to act as though God were a liar and that He doesn't really mean what He says. According to the larger catechism, one of the sins forbidden in the first commandment, the first commandment being, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, one of the sins forbidden in the first commandment is unbelief. Is it not apparent how unbelief is a violation of the first commandment in that it takes that trust that ought to be in the one true living God alone and places it rather in men or in other things in this world? Dear ones, unbelief will lead millions of people to everlasting torment in hell. For they will not believe and embrace the promise of life made to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for those who have embraced Jesus Christ and his righteousness through saving faith, there yet remain the temptations of unbelief that we must overcome In the Christian life, Christians fall into the sin of unbelief. In fact, we might say that our sanctification in Christ consists on the one hand of crucifying unbelief and on the other hand of growing in faith. Each time we fall into a sin in thought, word, or deed, it is due to the weakness of of our faith in some way. It is due in some way to having taken our eyes off of Christ and off of His Word. Thus, if we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we must also grow in our knowledge of Him and in our faith and trust in Him. If we would overcome, dear ones, the besetting sins in our life, we must grow in trusting Christ, taking Him at His word, applying His word to our lives. From our text this Lord's Day, we're going to be considering three examples of unbelief. The first example is that of the unbelief of the scribes in Mark 9, verses 14 through 19. The second example is that of the 
the unbelief of the boy's father that's mentioned in this text in Mark 9, verses 20 through 27. And the third example is that of the unbelief of the disciples themselves in Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. So first of all, let us consider the unbelief of the scribes. Look with me at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 19, where we read these words. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. I would submit to you that the unbelief of the scribes, of these Pharisees that's mentioned here, speaks of the obstinate unbelief in the lives of all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, as we shall see. This obstinate unbelief, wherein there is a refusal to believe Christ, to lay hold of Christ and his righteousness. There is an obstinacy, a refusal on their part to do this. Just picking up the context here, as Christ and his three apostles Peter, James, and John descend from the Mount of Transfiguration. For Christ allowed these three disciples to behold the measure of his glory, the brightness of his glory there upon that mount. They approached the place where the Lord had left the rest of the disciples. As the Lord comes near, he sees a multitude gathered around his disciples And from the midst of the crowd, he hears certain scribes of the Pharisees questioning his disciples, or more accurately, disputing, debating with his disciples. Although we're not directly told here what the issue was over which they disputed with the disciples, the context of the passage, I believe, will give us some clues as to what it was that they were debating. As Christ approaches, the crowd beheld him and was greatly amazed as he approached. They were greatly amazed at what they saw, according to Mark 9.15. Now, what did they see that caused such great amazement? Perhaps what they saw was some remnant, remaining brightness, glory, emanating from Christ 
that it appeared the night before, but was in the process of fading, yet still able to be seen by the people. If this is not the source of their amazement because they saw him and were amazed, it says. If this is not the source of their great amazement, it's difficult to know what it might have been. You see, like the light, the brightness of Moses' countenance as he came down from Mount Sinai, here is the greater Moses who comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and is filled with that brightness. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees, along with all the people who witnessed this, if that was what they beheld, <coughs> continue in their unbelief, continue in their refusal to receive and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Lord asked the scribes in Mark 9.16 over what they were disputing with his disciples. And when he asked them what it was, there's complete silence. There's nothing that comes from the mouth of the scribes and the Pharisees. They appear very willing to go after the students of Christ, but very unwilling to engage the teacher himself. They're kind of taking a very cowardly approach here. You see, they've been embarrassed and humiliated on several previous occasions by the Lord in public debates and likely are not very anxious to, to suffer such a setback again. But in verses 17 through 18, we learn over what it was most likely that the scribes disputed with the disciples. Where it says, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. <clears throat> Instead of the uh, scribes answering Christ's question, what are you debating about? That's who he posed it to, was to the scribes of the Pharisees. They didn't respond. Instead, there's this voice that comes forth in answering the question from the multitude, and it happens to be the father of this boy that is possessed with a demon. <clears throat> and he tells how he had brought his son to be healed and delivered from this demonic spirit by Christ. Luke 9.38 says it was his only begotten son, so as to show even more so the desperate need of this father as he pleads, as he desires, as he comes to Christ to see his son delivered. But since Christ was not present, the father had appealed to his disciples to cast out the demon, but they the scripture says, were unable to do so. Whereupon the Lord issues, as we see in Mark 9.19, the Lord issues a scathing denunciation against unbelief. Jesus said this, He answered him, 
and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. In the parallel passage in Matthew 17, 17, it uses this phrase, O faithless and perverse generation. It adds the it adds the adjective perverse. The question is here that we would want to answer, against whom is this severe rebuke publicly administered? Was it administered against the Pharisees? Was it administered against the Father? Was it administered against the disciples? Or was it administered by all of them, or against all of them, the whole multitude, all of those who are gathered there. Well, I would submit that Christ most likely addressed this harsh rebuke against the unbelieving and obstinate Pharisees and scribes and all of those in Israel who followed them. For the context does not reveal unbelief that is obstinate on the part of either the Father or on the part of the disciples that would seem to warrant such a severe public censure. Certainly there was an unbelief that we're going to look at in the life of the Father and of the disciples. There was a weakness in that area of faith on their part, no doubt. But it is, I would submit to you, the scribes, It is the Pharisees in particular who were characterized by an obstinacy of unbelief. It was certainly not the practice of the Lord to issue such a public, harsh censure against those who were merely weak in faith. But he did so issue harsh, severe censures public censures against those who were obstinate in unbelief. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, we read, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Verse 39 continues, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Against these Pharisees, he says, an evil and adulterous generation. The words he uses here, a faithless and perverse generation, are very similar. Furthermore, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, he distinguishes believers from those who are unbelievers. When he says, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, or generation, literally, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So there's a distinction made. With all of the weaknesses that Christians have, 
he does not call Christians a faithless or perverse generation. He does not call them or use that evil and adulterous generation with regard to those as weak as they may be. They're not obstinate and refuse to receive the knowledge of Jesus Christ that Christ offers. The Lord, as I said, will indeed address the weakness of unbelief in the Father and in the disciples later in the passage. But why then does the Lord address this message to the Father rather than to the Pharisees directly in Mark 9.19? Mark 9.19 says, And he answered him. That is, the Father said, This is what this is all about. My son is possessed of a demon. And this is what the demon does to him. And Jesus answered and said to him, it says, not to them, but to him. Why does the scripture then say that he answered him? Well, since the father had answered Christ's question that Christ had put to the scribes and the Pharisees, they wanted to be silent. They didn't answer him. You know, what's going on here? What are you debating about? They were afraid to raise the question, so the Father spoke up. So likewise, Jesus responds to what the Father said. That doesn't mean, again, I would submit to you that this message was directed to the Father, but since he was the one communicating what was going on, the Lord likewise communicates to the, to the Father, or through the Father, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Thus, we may infer that Christ was indignant at how the scribes and the Pharisees had sought to attack him through his disciples. Perhaps they said that the inability of the disciples to cast out the demon was due to the inability of Christ himself. By putting the spotlight on the weaknesses of the ministers of Christ here, the disciples, the scribes hoped to lead people away from Christ himself. That was their design. That was their purpose. They wanted to lead people away from Christ, not draw people unto Christ. And that is the obstinacy of their unbelief. They were doing whatever they could to not only themselves despise, reject Christ, but also that others might follow in their steps. This is ever the tactic of the enemy. Since he can't touch Christ, he will come after us, whom he can touch. Since he cannot attack Christ and do Christ himself harm, he will attack us. He will seek to put the spotlight upon us, as he did here with the disciples, in order to turn people away from Jesus Christ. Now, let's learn two lessons from this truth. First lesson being this, how we must ever guard ourselves and seek to live a life that is consistent with our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. For the enemy will seek to bring disgrace and shame upon Christ through our own weaknesses. You've heard it probably from others. Maybe before you were a Christian, you said the same thing. 
If that is the way a Christian speaks or acts, I don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> How that should bring there was great pain to every true Christian to know that he or she has brought shame upon the name of Jesus Christ by the way he or she has spoken or behaved. Of course, since Christ is the perfect God-man, none of us can perfectly reflect his glory. But what we can do when we blow it in such a manner, whether it's in front of our, our husband or our wife, our children, or it's in front of our co-workers, when we do blow it, what we can do is to say, please forgive me. I repent. I confess my sin. I should not have said that. I should not have done that. And to do so in such a way that, it, that they realize our sincerity. Not to do so proudly and arrogantly or with anger in our voice, but to do so with humility. That is, dear ones, I submit to you a powerful demonstration of the life of Christ flowing in us when after we blow it in sin that we can humble ourselves before Christ and before whomever we've sinned and ask them to forgive us. To do so before they bring it to our attention. To do so because, again, the Spirit of God has weighed so heavily upon our hearts. And we know that we have offended God first and foremost and brought shame upon Him. And we've led others perhaps astray or taken their eyes off of Christ, set a stumbling block before them by the way in which we have lived. You see, dear ones, that ought to hurt. That ought to bring grief and sorrow to us when we do that. And we're all guilty of doing it. But when we do it, it ought to affect us. And that is how we deal with that. We can't take it back. It's done. But what we can do is to say, Lord, use even my sin. Use even my sin to glorify Thee. Use all my mistakes that I have made, all of my weaknesses, to glorify Thee in the way that I deal with them before others so that I continue to turn people to Christ and not away from Christ. The second lesson that we can learn from this is that inconsistency in one's practice of the truth does not mean that something is wrong with Christ or wrong with the truth of Jesus Christ. Just because the disciples could not heal did not mean that Jesus could not heal. Just because they had a lack of faith does not mean that Jesus Christ was impotent. Their sin, their sin did not reflect upon Christ's insufficiency and inability or sinfulness because there was none in Christ. To the contrary, <clears throat> our inconsistency means we are weak. We are frail disciples of Christ who daily fall short of Christ and his glorious truth. Our inconsistencies, dear ones, are never excusable 
And they must be, as I said, confessed, mourned over, and we must seek forgiveness. But they make clear, dear ones, our need of Christ moment by moment, and they make clear the amazing grace, patience, and love of God in redeeming and sanctifying unworthy sinners like you and me who fall into sin. But oh, the tragic end, dear ones, the tragic end in everlasting torment that awaits those who, like the scribes and the Pharisees, who are uh, have an obstinate unbelief, who are a faithless and perverse generation. Dear ones, flee the obstinacy of unbelief. Let it not take root in your hearts. Listen today to the warning of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. With regard to this type of unbelief. The apostle says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Heart, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Take care. Be warned, the Lord says to us, that we do not fall into that sin, that trap. Return, rather, to Jesus Christ and embrace Him alone for your eternal salvation, trusting only in His righteousness as your only merit before God meeting every accusation that comes to your conscience with the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. The righteousness of Christ is sufficient. The righteousness of Christ is sufficient for me. The second main point is that which deals with the unbelief of the boy's father. Look with me at Mark chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. 
and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The unbelief of the Father here, as I've said, does not speak of the obstinacy in unbelief, but rather, I submit, speaks of the weakness of faith, which is yet a form of unbelief, but it is a different kind of unbelief. And this type of unbelief, as I've already mentioned, will be found in the lives of all who are justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. I submit to you that the unbelief of the Father is not an unbelief characterized by obstinacy like that of the Pharisees, but an unbelief that is characterized by weakness as in all Christians. Upon bringing the Son to Christ, <clears throat> the demon began to torment this poor boy in the very presence of Christ and in the presence of the Father and the crowd gathered there. The Lord asked the Father how long the Son had been in this condition to which the Father responded since he was a child. How he came to be demonized from his childhood, we're not told. Children, dear ones, are clearly, even covenant children, are not born innocent of sin. And therefore, are subject to the curses of sin, including at times, as we see here, being afflicted by demonic activity. The children of believing parents do indeed fall away from that which they have been taught due to their own rebellion against Christ and his word. There is no absolute guarantee that God gives to us that each and every one of our children will indeed come to faith in Jesus Christ. There are promises, wonderful promises, made to our children, but those promises are not necessarily all realized in their life. Does this not teach us to be ever so thankful for the restraining power of Christ over the enemy in our lives? That we do not find ourselves demonized as that poor boy was demonized. Although the demon sought to destroy this poor boy's life, God had preserved him until that particular moment in order to display his glory in him. We ask the question, why does God allow pain and suffering and affliction and trials to go on and on and on in the lives of of people and we may especially ask that question with regard to the lives of Christians and even more particular in the lives of those you're very close to, those you love very much. Why does the Lord allow this to go on and on and on? Well, I don't have a specific answer to a specific situation, but I can tell you this, that he allows it to go on in order that his glory might be manifested. 
in order that he might be seen in his justice, that he may be seen in his power, that he may be seen in his mercy and in his grace. The man that was born blind, the disciples said in John chapter 9, who has sinned that he was born in this condition? His parents or he himself? And the, and the Lord Jesus said, neither, but that the works of God, that those glorious works of God might be shown in him. He was born blind. And so, <clears throat> dear ones, we may think we have it rough in our present circumstances of pain and affliction, but let us not pity ourselves, for only God knows how bad it could be without his restraining power. Rather, let us pour out our thankful praise to the Lord who graciously has preserved us for his glory and even uses our pain, our suffering, the afflictions in our life to sanctify us and, I would add, to sanctify others by what we go through and to increase our faith in Christ. When I see... <coughs> A dear Christian suffering, I don't know how it affects you, but it draws me to the Lord. It causes me to fall upon my face before God and to be humbled, to seek God's mercy on behalf of that dear one. And that has a sanctifying effect in my life. And so the Lord not only sanctifies those who suffer themselves, but sanctifies others. Because, dear ones, if there is no purpose or no meaning in our suffering, then it's all a waste of time. If there is no hope in Christ, and we ask, why am I going through this? But God has a reason. God has a purpose, a most holy, wise purpose for all that we go through. And we can cast ourselves, even if we do not know specifically, we can cast ourselves upon Him. And the Lord uses it to make us alive in Christ and to, to bring us closer unto Him. Well, the Father here pleads in desperation with the Lord in verse 22 in these words, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That is, have compassion upon not only my son, but upon me, upon us. For the father was in effect saying, I too have suffered with my son through what he has suffered Many, many years. And isn't that true of Christian parents? How we suffer with our children through what they go. Through that which they pass. We suffer with them. This, this, this father suffered with his son as he saw what was going on in the son's life. Now the plea of the father is not filled with unbelief 
as it might seem from the English text when he says, if thou canst do anything, if thou canst do anything, that word if, that's, that particular condition in, again, a grammatical, I think, note here, in the Greek language, that is a condition of reality, not a condition of unreality. In effect, what he was saying, if thou canst do anything and you can do something, have compassion on us and help us. This is a, what is called the first class conditional sentence, a, a condition that assumes that the statement is true, assumes, assumes the reality and the truthfulness of what is being said. The Lord responds with the same kind of condition of reality when he says, if thou canst believe, and you do, all things are possible to him that believeth. Here the Lord is taking the Father who does trust him as Messiah and Savior. He's taking him from a weakness of faith to a strength of faith and encouraging his faith where he is. He's not quenching the smoking flax nor breaking the bruised reed, but in giving him encouragement to his faith to turn to Christ, to look to Christ. No doubt the demon... <clears throat> had even displayed his power at that precise time, as the, as the text says. That the demon went to work right in the presence of this father as this dialogue between the father and Christ is going on in order to take this man's eyes off of, off of Christ and to place his eyes upon this desperate situation and need of his son. And that is just like the enemy. Whatever he can do to take our eyes off of Christ, he will do. And the words of Christ found in verse 23 are the words of promise for this man to lay hold of. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Will he believe? Will this father believe the demonic power he sees manifested in his son to be unbreakable because he continued unabated for so long and even now continues in the very presence of Christ, this demon to show that he is in control, as it were? Will he continue to keep his eyes? Will he look to that? Or will he believe the promise of Christ? All things are possible to him that believeth. Where will he look? What will his faith be in? In what he sees? His son writhing in pain and agony in front of him? Or will he look to the promise of Christ? All things are possible to him that believeth. That's the same situation you and I are confronted with every day. Will we believe what we see or will we put our faith and trust in Christ who can work that which is impossible to man?
with tears streaming down the the eyes and from the eyes and down the face this father confesses Christ and confesses his own sinful weakness not obstinacy of unbelief but weakness of faith in verse 24 when he says and straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears Lord I believe help thou mine unbelief you see dear ones this man's faith in Christ is even revealed by his recognition of his own weakness of faith How each of us who have embraced Christ by faith need to hear this message today. All things are possible to him that believeth. Now that's not to say that God will do exactly what we ask him to do in all circumstances if we only exercise enough faith. (coughs) We only see there was a slice of life at a time. We would never suffer if it was up to us in our desires, in our requests. None of our loved ones would ever suffer if it was up to us. But the Lord, dear ones, knows the value of suffering in our lives, in building faith and character and revealing his power in the midst of our weakness. He shows his power when we feel that weakness. However, I wonder how many times we do not see the power of God evident in our desperate circumstances because we do not cast our faith upon the Almighty God for what we need. Rather, our eyes can only see our present circumstances, desperate as they may be, And we look rather upon, as it were, the sun that's rising than upon Christ and his word that is before us. How often do we go through that process without even realizing what we are doing and how we're showing unbelief in the promises of God not even reflecting upon it. We have become at times so accustomed to looking at the fearful circumstances and giving in to the circumstances that surround us that we have even forgotten that Christ tells us through the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all that God calls me to do, not in my own strength, but through Christ who strengthens me. I wonder, dear ones, is your God so small in your own eyes that you seldom turn to him with those seemingly impossible situations that come into your life, but rather you continue to look at the sun writhing in pain rather than looking to Christ and his promise? If so, understand that is unbelief in your life, a sin for which you should repent and seek forgiveness from God. It is a slap in the face of a God who loves you, who has saved you, who has redeemed you. In so doing, we deny the power of God and treat the Lord of glory as if he were just another man. The Lord commands the demon here in our text 
that had also brought a deafness and muteness to this son to come out of him and never to enter again. After one last display of demonic power which Christ permits, the Lord allows this demon to work one last uh, act in the life of this young boy so that all would realize that this demon didn't come out voluntarily but that he came out due to Christ and his power compelling him to come out. He didn't want to come out. And he was showing it by giving this, this last display of power, of his power in the life of this boy. But out he came at the word of Christ. And being left motionless as if dead, the Lord takes the son's hand in his own and presents him to his father whole. Dear ones, the Lord is able to take our children who are sinners by nature, who are children of disobedience by nature, who are blinded by Satan by nature, and by his amazing grace he is able to give to them faith in Jesus Christ. He is able to cleanse them from all of their sin. He is able even to remove demonic power that may control them. Whatever it is in their life, Jesus Christ is able. We cannot look and keep our eyes fixed upon our children's rebellion, sinfulness. We must recognize it. But our faith and trust must be in the God who is able to heal, who is able to deliver Dear parents, again, do we have the desperate faith of this father? Do we have the faith that he demonstrated? Do we shed the tears of this father for and on behalf of our children? Do we care that our children have an even greater need than being cast into a temporal fire by a demon, namely that of being cast into an everlasting fire in hell? And if you don't have any children, pray for the covenant children in this congregation. Let them be your children. Let them be the ones that you care for and show your love and prayers for. Let us as parents come like this father confessing with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Let us make this, the most important desire that we have as Christian parents, that our children come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and live for Him. Let nothing else, dear ones, money, prestige, education, let nothing else stand in the way of that which is most important. Let us seek to remove all stumbling blocks in our own lives that would prevent them and keep them from coming to Christ. The third and final example of unbelief is that of the disciples in Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, wherein we read these words. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. <clears throat> 
we turn to Matthew chapter 17 to look at the parallel passage to, to what I've just read, there is something that is added in that particular account that I think is significant. Matthew 17, 19 through 21. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. The unbelief of the disciples speaks, dear ones, of the unbelief and weakness of faith on the part of, I would submit, ministers and elders. On the part of ministers and elders. Disciples had been given, dear ones, the ability to cast out demons by Christ in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And they went out two by two and saw the power of God working through them in delivering people from demons. <coughs> but why were they not able to cast out this demon at this time? Jesus says, because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. Because they were trusting perhaps more in the gift than in the giver of that gift. Namely, God. Perhaps they were allowing pride to take their eyes off of Christ who gave them the ability and rather boasting in themselves and in their own ability. Perhaps they were viewing the ability as something automatic rather than something dependent upon faith. <clears throat> there was ministers and elders must realize that there is no gift or grace that one can put on automatic pilot and simply cruise into such a desperate situation. For Jesus says this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. It is not a perfect faith that is required in order to see the power of God demonstrated through the gifts of ministry. Jesus says even the faith of a mustard seed is sufficient if that faith is firmly anchored in Christ, the Almighty God, the sufficient Savior. And when that faith is nurtured and exercised by means of those graces, those, those means of grace like prayer and fasting, here was the sin of the disciples. They viewed the power of God as a formula rather than as a grace to be exercised through faith in the Almighty Christ. Ministers certainly are guilty of this, but so are members of the congregation. Because God has given you an ability does not mean that you can forget Christ and go forth and exercise that ability 
without his help, without his strength, without his aid. We must always, dear ones, regardless of the gifts and abilities that God has given to us, and we've talked about Solomon and the, the gift of wisdom that was given to him, but he fell into such foolishness. How did he do that? Because he took his eyes off of Christ. The disciples had the power to cast out demons given to them by Christ, but they could not cast this demon out because they took their eyes off of Christ. They were not trusting in him. Here was as you examine your heart right now, as we conclude, as you look and ask the Lord to search your heart, do you see an obstinacy of unbelief that was characteristic of the Pharisees? Or do you see a weakness of faith? A weakness in unbelief like that of the Father or the disciples? In either case, the answer is the same. Turn to Jesus Christ right now. Confess your sin. Call upon the Lord to heal you of your unbelief and to give you renewed and clear sight of Christ in his power and his glory to come to your aid and help. May this prayer be continually upon our lips every day. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.